Welcome to the first uh, topic night of this academic year. And we're looking tonight at church discipline. We're not doing church discipline in one sense, but we are doing church discipline in another sense. Uh, we've seen this come up in our studies of 2 Corinthians already. And if you look very carefully at the top of your handout, you'll see the verse uh, that we saw about church discipline in 2 Corinthians. That is why we're talking about this. And it is good, it is good for a church to talk about church discipline whilst there is no big church discipline going on. We want to talk about it, so it's not, we're talking about this person secretly, but we're talking about it generally. We want to talk about it now so it is an inoculation for when and if we need to use it. But it's also helpful because it helps us to see how God has designed his church to function. In some ways we should have done something on the church first before we came to this, but I'm going to try and have my cake and eat it too. Let's see what happens. But before we, before we get started, it is worth praying. So we're going to pray for God's help. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we pray that as we think about this topic from 2 Corinthians together, you would be growing us and shaping us. Help us to see the resources you've given us for the church this evening. Would you help us to be clear on this topic and to see its benefit for all of us at Christchurch Hemel? Help us to think hard and discuss well, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's go into our tables. Good to have a discussion. What things come to mind when you hear the word church discipline? First things that come to your mind. Uh, have a chat in your tables. Let's have a couple of minutes on that. Off you go. We've already seen church discipline in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Paul is talking about this man. And church discipline's gone on. Let me read it. If anyone has caused grief, he's not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him, so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote to you is to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. We are not unaware of his schemes. I'm sure you looked at that passage in your growth groups, we're not going to go over it again now. But it does appear that the church in Corinth has done some church discipline. Uh, this man, whatever he's done, he's been put out of the church. But it appears also the Corinthians, they have, or shortly will have, gone too far with it. And that needs addressing. See, this passage, it's useful in two ways as we begin. Firstly, it shows us that church discipline is something that is biblical. It's important that as we look at these topics. We don't just have tradition. We don't just have our own experience guiding us. We want to be a church. Christchurch Hemel wants to be a church that is following God's teaching. I think secondly, this helps us see that things can be done badly. That things can be taken too far. And I want to admit up front that I know of churches that have used and abused church discipline before. So we want to get this right now. We want to think hard about what this is. Now, whenever I hear the phrase church discipline, I always think of the, the person, this might just be my situation, who says, Have your church, has your church ever mentioned church discipline before? And everyone goes, oh no, they've never said that before. So now if anyone ever says that to you, you say, yes, we had a whole evening on it. I'd be really excited. 
Anyway, to get our heads around the Bible's explanation of church discipline, we need to think about the church. The very first word, briefly. And this is what those four semicircles are on your handouts. Four little diagrams that help us think about what the church is. I'm going to speed through this. If you don't fully get it, that's okay. I'm just hoping this might give us some bearings. So to get what the church is, we need to do a super quick, and I mean super quick, Bible overview. Don't worry, it's not going to be too complex. But we start at the beginning of the Bible. We start at Eden. Eden with Adam and Eve. The heavens and the earth are connected. Think about that for a moment. God walks with Adam and Eve in the garden. They come to him. That's what those two arrows pointed to the middle are. They speak with God directly. They listen to God directly. The heavens, that's the top of this arch, and the earth, that's the line at the bottom, they are united. God is with his people. But as we know from our time in the Pentateuch last year, that doesn't last forever. In fact, there's a divide between the two. And the people are exiled. They are kicked out of the garden. So God calls Abraham. And long story short, he chooses Israel. And what happens? Exodus 20, he meets them at Mount Sinai. God's people gather around God's mountain and God comes down on top of it. That's what the arrows are doing there. The people are gathered around God at Mount Sinai. And as we move forward from there to the next bit, we get the tabernacle, which becomes a portable Sinai. God's people gather around that as God comes down and dwells in the tabernacle. God's people are called to gather, to gather around God. And as they gather around God, they're God's people. They are called out from the world around them. They're called out to be God's people. And as they're called out from the world, they become distinct from the world. They live differently to the world. If you remember Leviticus, don't be like the world around you. But then we see this all go horribly wrong, don't we? As the people of Israel, they do become like the nations around them. They forsake God and they live lives that do not reflect who he is. And so what happens to Israel? Well, same as Adam and Eve, they are sent into exile. They are disciplined for their sin. As we saw in the Pentateuch, this situation, it was not the ideal. The system is not the ideal. This is not where things were going. This isn't the end of God's plan. So we come to us. And what God did was he sent his son into the world to die on the cross and to rise to sit at God's right hand. That man with a J in the middle of him is Jesus. You can't get that. And the Bible describes the church as those... Rather than gathering around Mount Sinai or the tabernacle, those who gather around Jesus. The Bible will talk about Jesus being the head of the body and he is seated in the heavenly places. That's why Jesus is at the top there. And we, as church, are his body here on earth. Each church, represented by those circles, like us there, each church in itself is the church. Each church is Jesus' body. Christchurch Hemel is Jesus' body connected to Jesus, the head of the body. And every church is to reflect that we are called out gathering around Jesus, connected to him. And let's just finish the story, shall we? On the last day, the new heavens and the new earth, notice the uh, titles have changed behind me, they will see God's people with God together forever. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city 
and his servants will serve him. Sin is driven out and it will be no more. That is where everything is heading. Now, don't worry if you didn't follow all of that. There's a lot to think over. Maybe we'll do that at some point. But the big point, the big thing I want us to get this evening is the church is a gathering. The church is Jesus' body on earth. I will build my church, Jesus says in Matthew. And a gathering throughout the Bible is a called out bunch of people. People who come from the world and been taken and made into a gathering. That is the first thing we need to hold on to this evening. The church is a gathering of God's people taken out, called out from the world. The other big pillar we need this evening, and that is pun intended, is this one here in 1 Timothy. If you've been here on a Sunday night, you've seen this before. Paul is writing to Timothy and he says this, Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing to you with these instructions, so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. What is God's household? Where he carries on. Which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. You see, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says some amazing things about the church. You can hear a sermon series on our church website about this. But the big thing is that the church is a household. Or you could say the church is a family. Just like Israel, just like Abraham's family in the Old Testament was a family, now the church is a family through Christ. So two pillars that help us think about church discipline this evening. The church is God's gathering. It brings glory to God in the way it displays God to the world. It is called out from the world to be separate from the world to display God's glory. And the church is a family. And that family, as Paul says here, involves action, involves conduct. I think those are the two big pillars of what church is that we need to hold on to as we talk about church discipline this evening. So why do we need church discipline? Now, it might surprise you when I say this, but church discipline happens all the time at Christchurch Hemel. It's happening all the time. You know, the word discipling and the word discipline, they're actually from the same root. They're the same words. They are related words. Those two things work together. You've got it on your hand out there. You've got discipling and discipline. They both come as a formative and a corrective. Or as Paul says in 2 Timothy, what's that? Oh, look, they're so similar. They're the same words. That's good, isn't it? Change one of them to discipling. See, as Paul says in 2 Timothy, you know this, this verse, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do you see what Paul says there? The Bible is for teaching and rebuking. Scripture is there for correcting and training. But as we were thinking earlier, when we talk about discipline, we're mainly meaning the rebuking, the correcting side of things. That's what we're going to focus on this evening. So why do we need that? Well, let's go back into groups. I've spoken enough. Uh, let's go back into groups. Have a read of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Don't worry, it's not a very long chapter. What does that chapter have to say about the why of church discipline? 
Let's take a few minutes to read through that. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, specifically, what is the why of church discipline there? Let's go. Shall I run you through what I've got? We've already said some of them. I think the first one is for the church's witness. That is the first line to fill in on the bottom of your handout. Uh, it preserves the church's witness. Do you remember the picture from earlier, my really quick Bible overview? The church is a called out group of people that gathers around Jesus. But the issue in 1 Corinthians 5 is that the Corinthian church is doing something very worldly. In fact, he says that the Corinthian church is more worldly than the world. Did you see that? Even the pagans, it's of a kind that even the pagans, the Gentiles, do not tolerate. See, if the church is not distinct from the world and not showing God to the world, well, who will? So church discipline, one of the whys, is that church discipline actually serves non-Christians. That might sound a bit weird. But it serves non-Christians by keeping the church distinct and keeping the church attractive. Church discipline preserves the church's witness. That's the first one. Then into verse 2. It exposes sin. See that in verse 2. Paul, in calling this sin out to, the, to Corinth, is showing the sin for what it is. Did you see the people, they were celebrating it. Until Paul goes, that's a sin, what are you guys doing? And once the sin has been identified, it can then be cut out. See, sin loves to hide. Loves to hide among the church. And sin damages the body. So church discipline calls it out for what it is. It exposes sin, and that is good for other Christians around. Verse 5, it warns us about sin. I mean, it would be easy, can't it, to think uh, the old sin is just naughty stuff we do, oh well. But sin is a rejection of God. And sin is going to have an impact on the last day. Have a look at verse 5. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Church discipline is working so that this man's spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. When it says, hand this man over to Satan, it's saying, put him outside of the church, put him into the world where Satan is in charge. It's not saying anything worse than that. The idea is it's putting the man out, so the man realises something serious has happened, and that he might do something about it. It is warning about sin so that something can be done about it. So it warns about sin for the good of the person involved. Fourthly, it saves. That's the other part of what we just said. Church discipline, one of the big points of church discipline is to show someone that they're not living as a Christian. Church discipline says your act, your conduct is not Christian. Therefore, we're not sure whether you are a Christian. It questions someone's profession of faith. It should make the person consider whether they really are a Christian or not. So the goal of church discipline, as we're going to see in a moment, is restoration. It's not a permanent kicking out and you stay away. The point of church discipline is to bring someone back into the church. And so Paul says, do it so that this man's spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And as the church goes about making sure its members are true believers, it is working for the health of the church. And finally, verse 6, it protects the church. 
Paul says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? I mean, you don't need to say much about cookery. Yeast works its way through bread, through the dough. Sin, like yeast, works its way through the church. Church discipline stops it from spreading, stops the sin from spreading. It removes the issue, it protects the church. I mean, in 2 Timothy, Paul talks about gangrene. Don't need to go into too much detail about what gangrene is. But it takes drastic action to stop gangrene from spreading in a body. And so church discipline makes sure the church on the final day is for God's glory. That's the why. It's the five things for the why. That is why we need church discipline. And I'm hoping you're starting to see that actually church discipline is a good thing in the life of church. But how should church discipline be done? Well, Matthew chapter 18 is a great place to see this. At this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is explaining that he is going to go ahead of the disciples on the way to the cross. And then at some point, very soon, Jesus will be with them no longer. And so he's talking here about how to live together as a church. There's two steps to this question. First one, read the main bit, Matthew 18, 15 to 20. When I say read, this is the one worth reading all of it. See if you can outline the steps to church discipline there. And then just have a skim of the surrounding context. There's some surprising uh, things in the context. Uh, It starts at 1722, it finishes at 1835. Just see what that adds to our understanding. But the main one, read Matthew 18, 15 to 20, and see if you figure out the steps to church discipline. Let's go back into our groups and do that. Here you go. So here you go. Did you notice, as we went through that stuff, the process should, the process of church discipline, it should involve as little time and as few people as possible. Did you see that? Verse 15, ideally, it stays between two people. Ideally, two people will be enough. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their faults just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. Pointing out their fault, uh, the word there should be something along the lines of convicting, convicting your brother or sister. That's not in a, a passing of judgment, it's more convincing them of their sin. The aim of church discipline in this case is not to score points over someone, ha ha, I'm holier than you. The aim is to win them over, to go, you've, you've, you've failed there, come on, come back. And that is hopefully where things finish, that's where church discipline should finish. But if that doesn't work, if they will not listen, take one or two others along. You see, it's still trying to be small. It's trying not to be a big deal. But it escalates to one or two others. Again, the fewest amount of people possible. And just to plug the Pentateuch again, uh, Jesus goes to Deuteronomy here, uh, as he says this, just like Paul does in 1 Timothy. Uh, So similar to the people of Israel, the way that Israel was meant to function between your brothers and we know in, the, in Genesis chapter 4, the brothers don't get on, do they? One kills another. And then in Deuteronomy, the kind of family language, take two or three witnesses with you before something happens. The church is to be like Israel in the way that they function. And it's only at stage three in Jesus' thing, as we've escalated higher, that we get to this. And this is a command. Uh, you could translate it, I command you to regard them as a Gentile or tax collector. 
I mean, treat them sounds quite a quite a nice British way of saying it, doesn't it? Oh, you can treat them like a... It's that I command you to do this. But the big thing here is this is the last resort. Jesus is saying, in Matthew 18, do anything, absolutely anything you can, to win your brother or sister back from stumbling. Give them the space, give them the opportunity to repent. Get everyone involved, if need be. Give it as much time as you can. Do it well. And notice the final phrase there. Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. If you were to read the Gospels, who is it that Jesus is preaching to in the Gospels? It's the pagans, the Gentiles, the tax collectors, isn't it? So church discipline isn't a shunning. It's not an ignoring. I mean, if you go to the cults, if you look what the Jehovah's Witnesses do, they kick you out and they ignore you forever. This is not doing that. This is not blocking someone from hearing the gospel. But this is treating them as a non-believer. Now, of course, a church may need to stop someone coming on a Sunday morning if they are a physical danger to someone else. That is, that's a connected but not part of church discipline. Discipline of itself does not stop someone hearing the gospel. But it does say to them, I'm going to treat you like a non-believer, in this case, a pagan or a tax collector, because your actions are not showing that you are a believer. Yeah, that's going to be hard, isn't it? I mean, just imagine that happening to someone in our church family. I imagine it's going to be emotional. It's going to be physically difficult to do. I mean, I do not wake up in the morning looking forward to doing church discipline. I don't think anyone does. And if you do, we'll manage some words. But that is why I think this passage continues into the next couple of verses. That's why Jesus says this afterwards. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Do you remember the earth and the heaven picture earlier? And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, the two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. What this stuff is effectively saying is this. If we do church discipline according to Jesus' teaching, according to Jesus' standards, we are doing heavenly work. If we do it Jesus' way, Jesus is with us. I mean, that's a famous phrase, isn't it? Uh, Where two or three gather in my name. Two or three gathering isn't church. Do you see that in the passage? Two or three gathering is before you take it to the church. Two or three are the ones who are deciding from earlier. So when someone says when two or three gather, it's actually a church discipline passage. Watch out. But if church discipline is done Jesus' way, in the way that Jesus teaches, then Jesus' authority and Jesus' presence is right there with us. It's worth noting the surrounding context as well. Did you see what parable comes up just beforehand? It's the parable of the lost sheep, isn't it? Have you ever wondered why does the lost sheep, why in that parable does the shepherd go out after one sheep and just leave the 99 to do their own thing? But in Matthew's gospel, it's because those 99 are safe in the pen. They are in the church. And the one who's gone out, you want to bring them back in. The one who's under church discipline, you want to be bringing back into the fold again, like a sheep that's wandered off. There's probably lots more to think about that there. That struck me as I was going through this. And I want to make this explicit. We've seen this already a few times, but let's underline this. Church discipline, church discipline is an act of love. Church discipline is an act of love. 
Uh, One famous preacher said this, if you see your neighbour sin and you pass him by and you neglect to reprove him, as in tell him what he's done, it is just as cruel as if you were to walk past his house, see it on fire and just carry on walking. That's striking, isn't it? To not warn our brothers and sisters of sin is like passing their house whilst it's on fire and not doing anything about it. Church discipline is an act of love. We do need to be careful how we use this love word. I mean, love is thrown around all the time today, isn't it? If you live in a universe where humanity is at the centre of the universe, and we human beings are the measure of everything, then no, church discipline isn't loving. But biblically, love is to desire another person's good. And another person's good is always God. I mean, that is how we were designed, to be in relationship with God. That is how we flourish. So if we love someone, we want them to be with God. And so the worst thing you could possibly do, how you could actually hate a person, in fact, is to not warn them of their sin. To not warn them of the consequences of what they're doing. And as we do that, we're following our Heavenly Father's example. There's some passages on your handouts. So remember what I was saying, the second pillar there. The church is a household, the church is a family. Whose family is the church? Well, it's God's household, God's family. Book of Proverbs says this, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, and do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, as a father, the son he delights in. You see there, God disciplines those he loves. Just like a dad disciplines their son. Just as a dad stops their son running into the road. It maybe seems like he's stopping them having fun. He's actually doing something important there. And then the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, quotes that proverb. And then he adds this to it. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Church discipline isn't a pleasant process. For anybody involved. But it leads to righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. And just to go to Revelation, because why not? In Revelation, Jesus says the same thing. Those whom I love, Jesus says, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous, he says to this church, and repent. Discipline whilst painful works for good. Church discipline whilst painful works for good. As I say, if you're a parent, you know that. You grab your child before they run into the road. Uh, You discipline your child when they're doing something dangerous. Not because you enjoy it, but because it is for their good and it trains them. And church discipline is the same. It should desire growth. It should desire restoration. Church discipline is for a family. It is out of family loyalty. It should never be vindictive. Never be vindictive. Because Christians believe that vengeance belongs to God and it is God's to repay. So church discipline is an act of love. It's an act of love because it brings people to God. So that's the why. That's the how. What about when? What warrants church discipline? And when I say church discipline now, I mean that third stage of Jesus' command there. What warrants church discipline? Well, Matthew 18 shows us three things. 
The first one is when the sin is outward. Just think about it for a minute. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. To point out someone's fault, it has to be outward, doesn't it? Sin has to be outward for someone to notice. It's really important to remember Jesus didn't give us a God's eye view into someone else's heart. We have to be careful of impugning motives onto someone. The second thing in Matthew 18 is it's significant. It takes a lot, doesn't it? We saw that in Matthew 18. It takes a lot to get to the stage of being brought to the church. It takes a lot of non-repentance. We saw three steps in Matthew. It's a significance. It shouldn't be taken lightly. And thirdly, I've just said it. When the sin is unrepentant, Matthew 18, between two brothers, and then with two others, and then with the church. See, the hope in church discipline is that things will be resolved straight away. If it's not resolved straight away, well, the person is unrepentant. The person is not repenting for what they've done. And it's worth saying, we don't have a God's eye view into people's hearts, do we? But if you are doing something today, this evening, we'll take tonight as formative discipline and do something about it. But for church discipline to occur, as Matthew 18 teaches, all three of these things must be true. All three of these things. Why these things? Because if you're doing these things, you're not living what you claim. If you're sinning outwardly, significantly and unrepentantly, you are not living as a Christian. So if someone's doing this, their actions are not showing that they follow Jesus. An unrepentant sinner in this situation is saying, I don't believe Jesus is Lord. I don't believe he has control over my life. And therefore, they're saying I'm not a Christian. It's worth pointing out, I didn't like putting this line on the handout, it's worth pointing out that this matters all the more for church leaders. I mean, you know of all the stories of church leaders who've gone astray. If you were to go to Matthew chapter 5, it's on your handout, 17 to 25. It matters for church leaders, because church leaders, they're in a position, aren't they? A bigger position of representing the church. And 1 Timothy 5 says, any church discipline on an elder needs to be public. Because leaders affect the church's witness, and therefore it needs dealing with. And because leaders are role models, as they're disciplined, others are to see and to take notice. That's 1 Timothy chapter 5. Yet, yet, this is the thing I think always gets missed. Remember Matthew eighteen seventeen, Treats them as a pagan or a tax collector, which still means sharing the gospel with them. They are not lost causes. If someone is in church discipline, we don't write them off. We don't say you're never welcome again. We continue to share the gospel as Jesus did. That's really important. I'm hoping to have time for questions, but I'm just wondering if a couple of examples might help. Uh, One obvious thing that needs church discipline and one that might not be so obvious to us. Uh, Hopefully this will make sense. And if not, you can ask questions. First one, uh, adultery in the church. That's a grievous sin, isn't it? That immediately calls into question someone's faith. Why? Well, because it misrepresents Jesus and it damages God's household. Adultery is not something that you stumble into. And even non-Christians, the world out there recognises it as wrong, typically. Adultery is pursuing sin rather than Jesus. It's saying, I'm after that, I'm not after that. 
So adultery would be something that we'd want to do church discipline about. If we knew that was going on in the church, it is all three of those things, isn't it? We'd want to deal with it. Here's one we might not think of. Persistent non-attendance at church. Not nearly as obvious as the previous one. Yet I think if someone is not coming to church regularly, persistently refusing to come to church, that is telling something about the person. See, a person who doesn't want to come to church, doesn't want to spend time around Jesus in God's family, was well, question mark as to whether they are Christian. Firstly, because it calls into question their claim to love Jesus. If you love Jesus' head, you love Jesus' body. The two are connected. The head is connected to the body. And if we say to the outside world, you don't need to be called out of the world, well, it doesn't represent Jesus, does it? But this is a more important point. It means that the church can't vouch for whether the person is a Christian or not. If you're not at church, we can't tell whether you're a Christian or not in the way you're living. The church can't vouch for whether you're still a believer. If you've been gone for a while, the church can't say you're a believer. So what a church is doing when they do church discipline in this case, is they're saying, we're not sure you're still a Christian. Obviously, this is someone who's been to church, been part of the church, and then has stopped coming. So what would you expect from a church to do? So as discipline is an act of love, its aim is to show someone that being away from church, being not part of a church family, is a dangerous path. It's not something you want to do. As Hebrews says, don't give up meeting together, because that is how you're going to keep going. If you don't keep meeting together, it's going to be hard for you to keep going. So church discipline in this case would long for people to come back, would long for people to come back to church and to flourish as God intended. As I said, two completely different uh, things going on there, things you might want to talk more about. That's our time. I'm happy to talk uh, privately with people if you have any more reflections as time goes on. Uh, but it'd be great to pray, commit ourselves to God that we would do this well and that we'd see this as a benefit to the life of church. Should we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we could spend this evening looking at your words, thinking about church discipline and the way that you have uh, called us out as a people to be out of the world and gathered around you. Father, we pray that as a church uh, we would take that seriously, that we would be those who uh, really reflect on what we've talked about tonight and long to be the church you call us to be. Father, help us to uh, know just exactly how you want us to be as a church. Help us to do the difficult things when they need to be done. But help us to, as a body united together around the Lord Jesus, do those things to your praise and glory, we pray. Or they help us to reflect more on this as we go out into our weeks now, we pray. Amen. Amen.